Hey, and welcome to this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. The NBA season is back, and so is this pod. This week's guest is five-time NBA champion and NBC Sports Bay Area studio analyst Brian Shaw. Man, this guy has a lot of stories. We go behind the scenes about LeBron James last year when he was the associate head coach under Luke Walton for the Lakers and how the trade rumors killed the Lakers last season. We go deep into the Kobe Shaq beefs, how he mediated Damian Lillard and Shaq's rap battle this summer, and of course, Brian, the former Laker and former assistant coach, explains why he's not picking the Lakers over the Clippers this year. And as Shaq's longtime teammate, I ask him what advice he'd give to Zion Williamson as he enters the league. All that and more on this week's episode of The Haber Show. Let's get right into it with Brian Shaw. We do this thing on this podcast, the Haber Show podcast, where we like to play a little game up on the top. And we did it with Stan Van Gunn. He did it with J.J. Redick. A little look back on their careers. And you play with some legendary players. You play with Kobe, Shat, Arvita Sabonis in, in Portland. Yes. AI. AI. That's right. You coach LeBron. You coach Paul George. So you've been on some legendary teams about, around legendary time. Larry Bird Larry in the beginning. Larry Bird, Kevin McHale. Yeah, this is Kevin Harris. Bacon sitting across uh, <laughs> the way from here. But the most legendary team, in my estimation, I did some research, the most legendary team that you were on was uh, 1994, Anything Can Happen on B-Ball's <laughs> Best Kept Secret. You this did album, I did some digging. Look, look, Brian, this team that you were on, this album, this hip-hop, West Coast hip-hop album that you you were on with, I think Warren G produced it. Warren, G, well, every every uh, player got to choose their own producer. So Warren G actually produced Cedric Sabalos' song. Ant Banks, who was out here on the West Coast, who did a lot of two short stuff, did my song. Um, Money B from Digital Underground did Jason Kidd's song. This is the game. <laughs> this is you're already, you're already, I'm crossing these off the list. There were ten NBA players, including you, Mr. Shaw. Ten NBA players who were on that album. It was called B-Ball's Best Kept Secret in 1994. You already named Cedric Sabalos. Then there's Jason Kidd and you. So there are seven other NBA players who were on that album. Can you name? How many can you name? Jason Kidd. Yep. Malik Seeley. Yep. R.I.P. Dana Barrels. Yep. Chris Mills. Yep. J.R. Ryder. Yep. Dennis Scott. And Shaq. You got one more. One more. Did I do GP? GP. Wow, that was quick. Like, when was the last time you listened to that? It must have been this morning. For you no. to name 10 off the top of your head, man. That was incredible. Well, you know, at that time, my, my kids weren't born yet. So now my kids keep that CD in their rotation. Do they even know what a CD is? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. But, uh, no, we, we uh, I jokingly... Every time I'm around, you know, I grew up in Oakland. I'm around uh, Gary quite a bit, around uh, Jason quite a bit. So anytime they're over my house or they're riding in a car with me somewhere, I always put their song on. And um, so I am, I'm, I'm still pretty familiar with everybody who was on. You know, you said rest in peace, uh, Malik Seeley. Yep. But you know, I, I remember that very vividly. It was a long time ago, 25 years ago. But I remember yeah, the 25 it. anniversary of that album is November 15th. This like coming up in like a couple weeks here, man. I I didn't know that you were going to be able. Like that's a long time ago. But how did that come together? You're in the NBA at that point, but how did that come together? So basically, uh, Sony Records 
did a, they were doing a, a project for charity, and uh, they had hand selected a few guys to do songs, and I wasn't originally on one of the that wasn't really one of the selections. And Gary, when he was going in the studio to record his uh, his song, he asked me to just come along with him. And we were, it was in the summertime, you know, we were in Oakland hanging out. Yeah. So I went in the studio and. I'd never been in a you know recording studio before, so while they were taking a break and the beats were still playing, I would just put on headphones and just freestyle in the booth. And so uh, the uh, director or producer of the whole project came in. He said, "Hey, I got a couple more slots. You know, do you want to do a song?" And so I said, "Sure." So they basically gave each artist player slash artist uh, twenty five thousand dollars to go out and hire a producer and to pay for your uh your studio time you know and so everybody you know selected who they selected yeah. as their producers and pumped out the song that summer and um they even had a, a album release party at jerry's deli down in marina del yeah. rey where dr dre actually uh came and and uh and listened uh it was a big part of the album release thing back then in the wow. heyday of the of Death Row and Interscope Records, had you met Dre before that? I had not, so I just so he I, walks in and you're just like, or did you hear about it beforehand, or did he surprise you guys? No, they told us that that he was going to be there. I think that Sony um, had had done something in in uh, with with Death Row to you know to get some people to come there, and so you know he was one of the guys that came and showed up and uh, supported us coming out and doing that. Man, I mean, ten for ten on that. <laughs> I mean, all right, I'm not going to let you go unless you uh, until you tell me who is the best of those ten guys. And uh, let's let's put aside yourself here on this one, but um, I don't want to get you in trouble with GP. I don't want to get you in trouble with you know Shag. He's a big guy. But who would you say had uh, had the best skills? Well, I mean, no question about it is Shag. I mean, you know, <laughs> he was a, a platinum. Yeah recording artists and actually later on that year I t ended up teaming up with him in Orlando and got to see his skill set up close um, but Cedric Sabalos was really really good and well, I'm, saying, I'm saying as a rapper as a rapper as a you're saying no as a rapper okay all right so Shaq I would say was probably the best yep and then I would have to say uh, Cedric Sabalos after after that Cedric had always MC parties uh, down in L.A. You know, in the summertime at barbecues, he was, you know, handy on the mic. And, you know, even when he retired from the NBA, he was uh, kind of like the hype man in the crowd for the Phoenix Suns games. Um, so he always had that natural ability. He had the voice. Yep. Um, but I would say they, those two were probably the best. Man, right off the top. <laughs> this is great. I mean, I could end the podcast right then. But that, that uh, you know, that gets to me with uh, the NBA right now. It's wide open. Anything is possible uh, was this, the track that you laid down. It was, you know, a heartfelt song near and dear to your heart there, obviously. In this era today, we just did a show, and it seems like the NBA is wide open, but you have tentacles on both sides of the L.A. teams where, you know, you used to coach Paul George in, in Indiana back in 2012. He once called you a mentor to him, and then you got on the other side, the Lakers, you were on the Lakers bench last year with LeBron, and you would coach with Frank Vogel, his coach now. Right. So 
how do you see this playing out? Because you have personal experience, and Ty Lue you're close with, too. Played play with Ty Lue for a couple of years in L.A., won a couple of championships with him um, as well. One of the other coaches, well, Jason Kidd, obviously, you know, was a few years younger than me, but grew up with him in the Bay, uh, as well as Phil Handy, who's on the bench with them. Mike Penberthy, who's on yep. the bench. He was on our 2001 championship team with the Lakers. So I do have <laughs> tentacles on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you how do you play that? Like, they're going to be upset no matter what you say. You, no, you can't win on both sides. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that has endeared me, you know, if I say to anybody that I've come across in my, you know, 31-plus years of being in, involved in the NBA is that I'm going to shoot it straight. And I'm going to tell you the truth. And, you know, and so whether you like it or not, you can respect it and appreciate it because it's the truth. And so um, I have great relationships still with yep. all of those guys. And um, I've made no secret about it. You know, being as close as I was to the Lakers, you know, you know, 15, uh, 15 years or so as a player and a coach with that organization, um, but also with my affiliation with the other guys on the other side, other locker room down there with the Clippers. Yeah. I've picked the Clippers to win the championship this year. I've gone on record and said that, and having the intimate knowledge that I have about both sides, I just think that the defensive prowess and potential that the Clippers have, along with having two superstars in Paul George and and, and, uh, Kawhi Leonard, a a head coach that's won a championship in Doc Rivers and another coach that's won a championship as a head coach, Mm -hmm. Ty Lue, on that bench and um in with the Clippers couple with can LeBron stay healthy can Anthony Davis stay healthy on the other side I give the edge to to the Clippers I mean they they, yep. they won 48 games last year it's pretty much the same core intact and you add Paul George and Kawhi Leonard I mean that's my pick <laughs> and it seems it seems odd to like it's not a hot take to go with the Clippers, but um, considering they only, you know, they, they won 48 games last year, they got Kawhi, they got PG, but I just think the continuity is going to really help them. You know, the continuity of having Doc, continuity of having Lou Will, and then you got some high upside guys and Harrell coming off the bench. And, and the other thing is, you know, too, you know, L.A. Lakers are kind of, you know, they're a sexy pick for people. Um, they're Showtime you know, revisited. Um, they have the star power now with LeBron and, and, and the brow. But the Clippers play extremely hard. And last year, coaching against that team, you know, I thought that they overachieved winning 48 games, but they did it because of the fact that they consistently played hard. And that mentality that they brought to the floor night in and night out, starting with Patrick Beverly, the smallest guy on their team, yep. you know, to Montrez Harrell when he came off. And it was infectious, um, and they played that way. And they could throw a group out there, with you know, now with Jermichael Green. And, you know, last year they had Sindarius Thornwell. And, you know, but they would throw these guys out. They weren't afraid to get in your face and be physical. And they did not give you a playoff. And so I think that, you know, some of the Lakers can get caught up in the Hollywood scene. Yep. 
and you know you're going to get you know and that's kind of the difference in the crowd between the Lakers fans and the Clippers fans. You know you have kind of a white collar crowd with the Lakers, and you got a blue collar crowd and team which fits Kawhi and exactly. Paul George's game, right? Exactly. What is AD getting himself into? Like not just playing with LeBron because you were with LeBron last year, but just the Lakers aura. You go from the New Orleans Pelicans, which is the smallest market in the NBA. This is night and day, you know, and not just in terms of expectations of the purple and gold and the, you know, the, the trophies that you were a part of. But, like, what is AD getting himself into? Well, I think he's getting himself into exactly what he wants to get himself into, you know, an opportunity to play on, to have a platform to show uh, – what kind of player he really is yeah. and and what he's capable of accomplishing both on the basketball court as well as off the court with all the opportunities in terms of endorsements and you know and other uh, endeavors that he can get into there in LA. I mean, you know, it's it's you can't match the the weather, the beautiful <laughs> people in LA, the the water, the beaches that are there, you know, like I said, beautiful people um and then on top of that you know, a franchise that is championship or bust. And so that's a good kind of pressure to play under. Um, and then when you're teaming up with, you know, one of the greatest to ever play the game, what's not to like about that? Yeah, and on the outside, I mean, I wasn't there in L.A., but it seemed like the controversy of the trade and the trade demands must have been, like in your years as a player and as a coach on the bench, that must have been something totally different than what you were used to. I mean, even even with Kobe and Shaq, there's not 24-7 social media. Exactly. And and, that, and to be honest with you, that's what killed our team last year. It killed the morale of our team. We, as a staff, got hired there in 2016, and the expectations were completely different. You know, we came in, we replaced Byron Scott and his staff, who had just won 17 games the previous season. Kobe was in his last year, yeah. so, you know, that whole thing was a circus. And, um, you know, so we come in and the organization says, hey, we're going to go young. We're going to develop these guys. We want you guys to show improvement, you know, year after year and create value for these guys and develop them. And we were on a path to do that. You know, we went from them winning 17 games to winning 27 games to winning 35 games. And then, you know, this last season with LeBron, um, and I, I think he missed 22 games or so. You know, we only ended up winning 37 games, but our young guys were getting better. Um, they were developing and all the things that we were yeah, asking. I was there in Charlotte with the triple-double, Alonzo Ball and right, LeBron. Right. I mean, it was, I mean, if they could click, if if the young guys could play with LeBron all on the same page, I mean, they could make some noise in the playoffs. And, and you know, and so, you know, we had certain guys. Lonzo was starting to play really well. Brandon Ingram was starting to play really well before he got injured and went out. Um, Josh Hart was really coming along. Kuzma was probably the most consistent of all of them. And then, you know, LeBron gets – first of all, the addition of LeBron, now the expectations are from develop these guys to we – you know, we're expected to, to win right now. And when LeBron got hurt on Christmas Day – and was kind of a little bit away from the team. You know, he was there every day, you know, doing his rehab and stuff, but not having his presence out there on the floor. Um, when the trade talk, talk started coming up around, you know, around All-Star break a little bit prior to that, all the players whose names were being mentioned in the trade, uh, it did something to their morale because I think they felt like, you know, we're here, and, you know, they're young, they haven't been through this before, and they, every day they're coming in, they're being questions, questioned about 
you know, this, these trade demands that Anthony Davis made mm-hmm. all the way in, in New Orleans. He has the same agent as LeBron. And so our team just kind of nosedived uh, when 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 those rumors came up, um, you know, our young guys couldn't handle that, and it was it was a tough situation for everybody involved. Because I, I mean, I don't know how stars do it in today's NBA, where they're looking at their phones at halftime, they're 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 looking at social media, what they're saying, and it, sometimes it feels like you as a coach aren't leading the team. It's what they read outside that locker room. And I don't think that you could have said it any better than that. You know. I came in the league in 1988. That was prior to cell phones being yeah, around. What was, what was the communication <laughs> device that you, you had? You had to look another man <laughs> in the face, face-to-face, and, and talk to him. Yeah. At shoot-arounds, at practices, on the bus, on the plane rides, you know, you, you talked. Um, and then even when cell phones came on the scene around 1990 or so. Was Zach uh, Moore's cell phone? Well, the the, the 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 big yeah, the big brick phone yeah. and all of that. Um, the first story that I remember hearing was Vladi Divac's cell phone going off in the locker room when Magic Johnson was at, when he was coaching the Lakers. That so when you think about it, that had never happened before because there weren't cell phones yeah. before that. They said Magic took the the cell phone and slammed it up against the locker and smashed it into a million pieces. So now, you know, fast forward. 28, 30 years later, and it's, it's exactly as you said. The players come in at halftime. They're you know all the way up until before the game. They're looking at their phone. They're checking their Instagram posts, Snapchat, um, you know all these all these different apps that they have, um, and they're accessible to you know at that time when when we used to be concentrating on the game, watching the film that's on the board, yeah. and looking at all the bullet points that we need to do. They're reading about what people are saying and hearing about what what people are saying about them, and it changes the whole dynamic, and it makes it extremely tough for a coach uh, to have the undivided attention of his team in this day and age. I mean, you you got a lot of flack for that in Denver. I did. I had an assistant coach take my players' phones an hour before the game. They walked around with a box. Everybody put their phones in a box. Yeah. And I said, you'll get your phones uh, because – while our coaches were standing up doing their scouting reports during the games, guys were in their phones. They had their backs turned. They were – you would hear – one of the popular games was Candy Crunch. Yeah. And you would hear these little ching, 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 that would ching. That me nuts. While, while you're giving your – you know, while you're giving your scouting reports. So I was forced to take – their cell phones. You know, we had a young team trying to teach them some professionalism. Hey, this is your job. This is what you're here for, for two and a half, three hours. This is JaVale. Just, this is Ken Free, Ty Lawson, exactly. uh, Evan Fournier on that team. Yeah, and they had just won a bunch of games the year before. But, like, you're coming in here and you're trying to, you know, get the room. Exactly. And they're on their phones. I mean, that would that would drive me nuts as if, if you're hearing just the, the ding, 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 ding. Like the and I'm old school, and it did drive me nuts. And so I did what I, you know, it, I did no different than, you know, I have kids that are around their same age. And, you know, same thing. You come home at dinner, sit down and have dinner with your family. You want to talk to your kids and see how school was that day, what they learned, you know, what's going on, what happened. And the same thing, they're on their phones and not paying attention. So I would make my my kids put their phones down, and during this 
20 or 30 minutes that we're sitting around the dinner table, we're going to engage and yeah. interact. And then you can get back to your, your, you know, the phone's not going anywhere. Did you talk to other coaches? Like, how do you deal with this? Well, coaches today are very different from coaches when I came up. So, you know, in, in, in college, I, you know, I played on the U.S. team. Yeah. Um, and we had Bobby Knight and Lute Olson and John shot, and, and, and John uh, Thompson who spoke a completely different language and got in your face and actually would get physical and sometimes even put hands on you. And that was Did you do that with you? That well, it, I mean it happened with everybody and that was acceptable. You know, not to try to demean you or, you know, hurt you, physically hurt you, but just to to motivate you to play the game the right way and get everything that they can get out of you. And you can't do that now. Most coaches now don't want any confrontation at all. And I think, you know, one I really, really respect Greg Popovich. I watch him closely. And the years that he had, David Robinson, Ginobili, Parker, Tim Duncan, I respect him because it didn't matter if it was the 12th guy on the team or Tim Duncan he would get in their face and tell them what he needed to tell them. It's hard for me in this day and age to always say, we're doing great, guys. You know, keep it up. We're going to get them next time. And and that's kind of, you know, the way a lot of coaches coach in this day and age. And um, and it's tough, you know. And so my T- st- tough love is hard in today's NBA because – that confrontation, you know, a coach to a player, it's going to get out. Yeah, no question I about mean, it. You saw with the with the Sixers last year and with Jimmy Butler and like Brett Brown and having a, you know, probably with with the Lakers or with any of your teams you play for, it would probably rate like on out of 10, probably a, a 2 or a 3 in terms of confrontations between coaches and players, but in today's day and age, it seems like an 11. It is and and you know, the the thirst for to be the first one to report something or, you know, is it's real. It's 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 out there and um the code of ethics or the unspeaking r- rules and laws are kind of out the door now because everybody is so accessible. You're not gonna get away with anything at all anymore, you know, with everybody having camera phones and, and um, you know, like I said, just just being able to get right to their, you know, posting something and once it's out there it's it's immediate and then, then now you're you're in a reactionary uh phase instead of, you know, initiating something or putting your spin on it before. Now you gotta react and, and it's out there. You can't lie about it. You know, you can't make up anything because it's it's there. So it's that part the team of team aspect it's kind of lost a little bit of its you know if you're not interacting with each other in the locker room that's a huge deal yeah, and and i mean coaches having a you know i'm old school i'm a technological dinosaur <laughs> and so you know yeah as we're talking you have your cell phone face down <laughs> i i just got a text message and i was like man in the middle of uh, b shaw is talking about <laughs> distractions in the locker room and people chatting my phone is already buzzing my bad i'm sorry no, about no, that it, it's all good but i mean it's uh it's it's where we are and that was what was a struggle for me in my first stint, first and only stint and opportunity as a head coach, I couldn't let go of the old school values that I was brought up with. Instead of 
you know, kind of evolving and, and, and figuring it out, I refuse to do that. And, um, you know, and so and it cost me ultimately. But I'm learning. I don't think that I'll ever just completely sell out and be like, OK, I'm going to just let you guys run over me and do whatever you want to do. But I'm learning to be a little bit more patient and to understand that it's a different world that yeah. we live in now. And so, you know, things are, are, are not going to be what what they've always been. Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of the things with the the Clippers. I just feel like Doc has been through decades of of in this league, and and not to say Frank Vogel is this new kid on the block, but just the and, and Ty Lue. I just think the organization right now they've got some real adults, and it seems like this is a, a situation where man, if AD gets hurt or if LeBron gets hurt, this is a whole new team and uh, a whole new coaching staff, and it just seems like to me. There's a lot more risk on the on the Lakers side than the Clippers. Well, for sure. I mean, I think um, and I think we talked about it earlier in the segments that we did out on the floor. Anthony Davis has averaged missing 15 games a year, you know, throughout his career. LeBron is going to be, I think, entering his 17th season. He missed the most games he's ever missed in his career this past season. And when you get to that point, you can't put tread back on back on the tires when it's when it's worn off. And so. The, all the deep playoff runs, the 17 years, all the minutes and everything, they start to add up. And so I don't think that what we saw, you know, at, at the end of it all, he still averaged 28-7-7. Yep. So he can get that done, but in terms of the consistent, you know, there used to be a badge of honor about trying to play all 82 games, you know, playing for Phil Jackson. He always set that standard with our team from day one of training camp. You know, we want to be the team that have the most guys that play all 82 games. If you get knocked down on the floor or you get hurt wanting to walk off on your own without being carried off the floor, those were just things that you brought with you um, and you shot for. And so that's why it's hard for a lot of older retired players to – that's why they seem to come off as bitter a lot of times because when you had 30 days of training camp, with two a days, all thirty days, you did walk uphill in the snow. Like <laughs> all you of did that. have that, all of that. Yeah. You know, and there's so many different rules and regulations now. You know, you can have two practices, but they can be they can't exceed three and a half hours combined. Only one of them can be contact. The other one has to be non-contact. The money that's involved with the that players are getting now before they a lot of them have even consistently proven that they you know that they're worth it but it's what the market bears so you you can't be mad at them but you know those are some of the things that you know why when you hear a lot of older uh, retired players you know they're kind of bitter Michael Um, Jordan saying that Steph is not a Hall of Famer all of that you know and and um I don't I don't agree with that yeah but um but I understand where a lot of them are coming from because it seems as if uh it's easier for a guy to get a payday now and it's easier to you know just there was no load management no um and it's called an Achilles tendonitis <laughs> or whatever it was exactly exactly but but do you think and I'm, I'm big on this topic now because I, I i started talking to trainers and sports science guys a few years ago and they were just like man if we could if we could just rest this guy on a back-to-back he'd feel so much better the next day and be fresher for the for the next you know you know rest of the season or whatever it is do you Part of you just be like, what if I did have that where I didn't have to play in those back-to-backs? Would I play an extra year or two? No, uh, no. I mean, I don't. I don't think that way. I'm actually glad that I went through it the way that the, the way that I did, and I think these guys could if 
you know, if, if the league just said this is the way it's always been and this is the way it's going to be, I understand the other side of it. You know, some of these owners, they're, they're paying a lot of money and they want their guys to be fresh. They yeah. want them to last the entire season. And all these studies and things that they're doing now, they weren't doing before. But it also seems like with all the technology that's out there, that's in, you know, you think about it, Bill Russell and guys probably all the way up until the 70s, they were wearing canvas Chuck Taylors, yeah, right? Yeah. So now you got all these shoes with air and the pump and all of these, you know, orthotics and all of these things in it. And you do activation before you even do stretching when you get to, you know, we used to, to bend down, touch your toes ten times, do some jumping jacks. Hold it for ten seconds. <laughs> right, you're ready to go. Right. And so, you know, it's just a, it's just a different world we yeah. live in. It's a different way of doing things, and you just have to accept, you know, the way it is now. So uh, you actually, uh, people know that you played with Kobe, but they probably don't know that you played against his dad. In Italy. So Kobe was out there for that. You're pretty good. You're pretty good. Hey, I'm, I, was, I, I was ESPN. I was at ESPN, and they, I was called the research guru because I, would just, I was a researcher for them. That's how I started my career is just being, you know, I mean, there's a little black book I have here. It's just all just research. And so I, I'll come up with, like, random stuff that you probably didn't even know uh, but you were 10 out of 10 on that one. So I was, I don't know who was the most unlikely guy for you. Maybe Chris Mills uh, on that. But I, you got him right I, off I the bat. I feel like I'm a student of whatever it is that I participate in. I, I, I study it. Well, uh, I think you could say the same about Kobe. Exactly. So he's he's at like 10 or 11 years old when you are playing in Italy. In a, You played a rookie season in Boston. Right. And then you went overseas and... Jelly Bean is over there. Yep. So interesting story. If you study, if you're a law student, in and particularly back east, and you're in and you're studying sports law. Yes, you're you, in the yeah. You, you will come across a case: um, the NBA, the Boston Celtics, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Brian Shaw. Um, I played my rookie year in Boston. I only signed a one-year contract because it was a kind of a hard salary cap at that time and Boston was at the cap. So I only signed a one-year deal as their first-round pick um, because I could only sign for the minimum, and I bet on myself. And um, I ended up starting 62 games my rookie year. With Larry with, and Mikhail. Yep. I made the all-rookie second team. The Celtics drafted Mike Smith out of BYU, but during my rookie year they had traded Danny Ainge, and Dennis Johnson got hurt. So... Reggie Lewis and myself, you know, end up starting at the guard spot. And I knew that I had leverage because they didn't draft the point guard coming in. So I was a restricted free agent as a first-round pick after one year. All rookie. Danny Ferry had just gotten drafted as a second pick by the Clippers and didn't want to go play for the Clippers, so he went over to Italy. And I came, his agent called my agent and said, hey, they're looking for another guy. Make a long story short, they offered me about, six times what the Celtics were willing to pay me. And so I went over and played that season there. And that's where I met Jelly Bean. And, um, and I met Kobe as a young man. At, uh, or actually played against Jelly Bean and, um, and, and met Kobe when he was a, a young gym rat uh, jumping in everybody's uh, layup lines and stuff when they were playing against his dad's team. So, so did you think at that point, obviously hindsight twenty twenty. You had no all. idea. You're, you're, you're not, for those who uh, listen, <laughs> he's shaking his head. Uh-uh. He was he was this 
he was this relentless little kid that, like I said, I mean, literally, when we would be on the floor warming up, I played for his his father played in a town called Reggio Emilia, and for a team called Cantu, and I played in Rome for Il Messaggero, and when we would play them, they would um, he would literally be on the floor while we were warming up shooting with the team like he was on one of the teams and it's like whose little little yeah. baby's kid is this get him out of here and um you know so the american players at that time because we were in a big city in rome yeah when they were off on the weekends we we had a mcdonald's in um in in rome so a lot of the teams at naples and close by they would come to rome just to be able to 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 go to mcdonald's and um, so, you know, we'd, you'd end up hanging out with different – Walter Berry was there. you hang out with different guys, um, you know, different American players when they, would, when they would come through there. But that's where I met him and um, had no idea that he would turn into what we've seen, uh, you know, to the Black Mamba. <laughs> and I didn't see him again until I was in Orlando in – it had to be 95 or 96. He was a, he was a, a junior in high school. And Jelly Bean brought him to one of our games because he really, really uh, idolized at that time Penny Hardaway, who was my teammate. He was he was my height, six six. Yeah. And he said the craziest thing to me. He said, I hadn't seen him since Italy, since he was about ten or eleven. He said, I'm thinking about skipping my senior year of high school and coming straight into the league. And I laughed, and I I was like, this kid is crazy. I talked to his dad. His dad was like, yeah, after he finishes next year, he's going to be playing against you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. whatever, whatever. And fast forward a year from then, I see him making his announcement that he was foregoing college uh, to enter the draft, and the rest is history. Man, like, <laughs> you must have thought this guy is – I mean, you. I mean, in the NBA world or in basketball, you always get guys who are conceited, arrogant, and, and talk a lot of smack, right? But Kobe could back it up. And not only could he, but I didn't, I didn't know because you know, I, obviously there was a break of about seven years where, that I hadn't seen him, and you know, he had grown and what have you. And so it wasn't until the summer that he got drafted, he got traded to the Lakers in the, you know, during the draft. Yeah, I'm based in Charlotte. I remember. Yeah, and he got he played in Magic Johnson's summer midnight Magic uh, charity game at the Forum. Going into his so who's season. on the give me give me the scene there. Well, there was only two people that you need to know. Magic, I mean, uh, well, Magic obviously was playing, but Penny Hardaway and Kobe. And so here's Kobe getting a chance to play against Penny, who he idolized. And it's the summertime, you know, in those charity games, everybody's just kind of letting everybody yeah. dunk and you know what have you. But here's Kobe going super hard, pestering Penny, you know, challenging him 94 feet up the court. And he kind of did Penny in that day. And that's when you kind of, you know, said, this kid can really play. You know, you can see the athleticism, the skill set, and what have you. But what it did, it pissed off Penny because Kobe kind of stole the show and like really went at him yeah and so i remember when we started training camp the following season he said i can't wait until he he circled the game when we played in la that he was going to get a chance to play against kobe because of what happened that that summer 
And and what happened? Do we know? Well, Kobe yeah. wasn't playing a lot in the year, so they didn't, they didn't. It didn't end up, you know, yeah. being matching up the way that uh, the, the way that they they wanted it to. Well, that brings me up to uh, Jr. in that, I guess, a practice in in L.A. <laughs> so he was on that that album. But give people a sense of who Jr. is, and when you saw him going at. Kobe in practice were you just sitting on the sidelines like this is going to end well for you man well we basically said um, you get you know be careful what you ask for so JR is coming from he, okay. he, he joined the Lakers in what was that two, 2001 season so he's he's JR at this point correct now, he had played in obviously in Minnesota yep he played. He was a dunk champion. He played in Portland. He had played in Atlanta. Yep. Right before, right? Right. Yep. And, um, you know, done well. Um, you know, probably was talent-wise, you know, I would say arguably in the top five talent-wise of two guards in the league. You know, you had Eddie Jones. You had, you know, Jr. was up there. And um, so he came to the Lakers, and obviously, you know, he's coming off the bench and just kind of, in practice and he scored on Kobe and was kind of talking a little stuff and so Kobe said after practice me and you one on one and then this seems, this seems so cliche of Kobe he did that every time <laughs> every time there was a new player that came in there was a there was an establishment of pecking order and so it was just alpha males who are on the same team now who have to figure out who's the alpha and who falls below that so they talking stuff to each other so much so that Phil just stopped practice and um, so we did our free throws and everything yep and then we all pulled up chairs on the side Ron Harper Shaq Horace Grant myself and um, and Ty Lu. and we sat there and they played five games up to seven by ones and Kobe Absolutely, just murdered Jr. And Jr. was really, really yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, he was averaging twenty in the league. At Kobe murdered him, <laughs> and Horace Grant. So we were all laughing on the sideline, yeah. and Jr. was so mad he came over the sideline and basically challenged. He was like, "I'll beat everybody." You know, who wants to fight? He had his fist balled up because he was so mad he was embarrassed. And we were saying, you know, be careful what you ask for. And, um, you know, he said, I, just to let you guys know, I ain't no scrub. He was like, I gave, I used to give him numbers when I was in Portland and when I was in Atlanta and Minnesota. And he went down the list of you yeah. know, guys that he used to go at. But it wasn't it wasn't Kobe. So that that day was legendary in, in Laker lore. Um, what we I, saw. I saw, I, I, you know, you hear all these stories about Kobe and you don't know how much of it is made up or not. But there was a clip that I saw from that practice or the one on one game. And he was making Jr. spin around in circles in a one-on-one. This isn't like a rotation where he's lost on the right. court. This is Kobe's literally making him do circles in a one-on-one. Well, this was number eight Kobe. You know, this was the Afro number eight Kobe at the peak of his young athleticism um, and all the tricks that he, you know, that he. I mean, he he became more refined, I would say. When he turned in number twenty four, Kobe. Yeah. But yeah. he was raw as the number eight Kobe, and that was during that time. So. But he never lost that edge. I mean, no, dropping no, sixty or whatever. No, it was the in edge, his final game. Yeah, like, the edge is always there. But I mean, just in terms of you know him coming to grips with what he could do athletically, you know, at that point, 
you know, he 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 became more refined and picked his picked his spots a little more. Did, I mean, you came with Shaq, not with him, but you played with Shaq in Orlando, and then in Los Angeles. Did Kobe I'm ever? Smart. I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> like, did Kobe see you as a Shaq's guy? No, you know. Earlier, I alluded to the fact that I've always shot it straight. Yeah. With whoever it is, regardless of their status, you know, or anything else. And so I knew Kobe actually before, you know, way before Shaq from the Italy days. Literally from Italy, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and obviously I played with Shaq for two and a half, almost three years in Orlando. We had went, we went to the finals together. So I didn't choose sides. There were side, there were times when I got in Kobe's face and, you know, got in his grill. And there was times when I got in Shaq's face and I got in his grill if it was what I saw or deemed necessary to happen. So, you know, I don't think that either one of them felt like I played, you know, picked either one over the, over the other. When, when would you get at Kobe? Like, what what, what is an example of? Um, so, I mean, there were times where he just absolutely wouldn't pass the ball. Freeze and, people out. Yeah, he just wouldn't pass the ball. And, you know, one particular game we were playing in Boston, and Shaq was hurt, didn't play. And Kobe shot 47 shots in that game. <laughs> he went 17 for 47. And the replay, he missed 30, he missed 30 shots. shots. Didn't take 30, missed 30. 30. He went 17 for 47. And after the game, the reporters came in the locker room. They said, Kobe, did you feel like you needed to take that volume of shots because you needed to make up for the points that Shaq, you know, that you were going to miss out from Shaq since he didn't play the game? He looked right in the guy's eye who asked him the question in his eyes, and he said, no. He said, I felt like I had a better chance of making a shot one on five as opposed to if my teammates were wide open. And he did not crack a smile. He Nothing. He said that with a straight face. And it played everywhere that he said that. So the next, we get back to L.A. and we're watching film, and Phil Jackson turns up, piped in the, the interview as part of the film session and and then said, how do you guys feel about what your teammates said about you? And Rick Fox stood up, and he got real emotional. And, he, you know, he's like, man, how do you think that makes us feel? And, like, was going off on Kobe. And Kobe just looked at him right in the eyes and said, Rick, you can get mad all you want, but that's really how I feel. And so I had to kind of take a step back. And in a weird way, it makes you, it makes you feel like, you know what, if you got to go in the foxhole with somebody – that's the that's the mentality of the guy that you want to have yeah. that feels like he can take everybody out yeah. by himself. But there were just times like that where you know do something, and it probably was more so when I was a coach when he would really um, kind of punk some of the younger guys that were on our team that we needed Farmar, Sasha Vujacic, that I would have to step in and take up for them because they couldn't take up for themselves and put myself kind of in harm's way. And be like, okay, if you if you want to do that to him, you got to do it to me first. And um, you're like he, the big brother. You're like, well, I just, the voice of reason, you know. And <laughs> I and I just you know did what I felt you know needed to be done. And and I mean, but I did that with both Shaq and Kobe. And Shaq, at one point in a playoff game against San Antonio, scarred my knees up all the way to the white meat. He jumped on Devin George. Everybody in the locker room was standing around watching him. And um, and I came in 
and I got him off of Devin George, and I told him about himself. He might be the strongest man. And he turned around, and he charged me, and I was up against lockers, so it was nowhere for me to run. And I tried to drop low to go down and get him low so I, and, and see if I could flip him and use his momentum against him. And he laid that 300-and-something pounds <laughs> on top of me and just broke me down in the Alamo Dome. And dragged, he just dragged me across the floor, and it, and Ty Lue actually had to jump on his back to Wait, get him off He dragged you across? Oh, yeah. He, he was just dragged in the, in the locker room. There was, like, industrial carpet, and he had that weight on me, and he was just dra- – he had, he had me in a hold, and he just was dragging me, and I couldn't do anything about it. You know, he had me in a position where, I, I mean, I was absolutely helpless, and Ty Lue had to jump on him to get him off of me. And, um, you know, but – those were kind of, you know, and, and for two or three days, Shaq didn't talk to me. And then about the third day, he came to me and said, you know what, he's like, I apologize. I was wrong. You know, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. And he wasn't apologizing for what he did to me. He was apologizing for what he was saying and doing to Devin George, who is who I was taken up for. You know, on his he was apologizing. Right. And, and I got mad at Devin because when I got him off of Devin, Devin stood around. He just let him drag me. Man. So, so we laugh about that to this day. Well, I'm glad we got we got to Shaq because Zion Williamson is 19 years old in today's NBA. And you got to see and play with Shaq at 22. And he wasn't the Shaq that people remember from the Lakers. He, w- he was a different player at LSU than what you saw with the Lakers. And there's a lot of questions about Zion's fit and about his strength, conditioning. But what is like Shaq's – when you saw Shaq at his biggest, how much did this guy eat or what was his nutrition? What would he, like? How would you go out to dinner with this dude and, and see what kind of damage he would do at a buffet? Like how, how big how – how big is a meal – for a guy who's 300 plus. I mean, I think it was appropriate for for his size, you know. Um I mean, I might be able to eat a double cheeseburger and get full. Yeah. And he it would it would probably take him two or three to get full, you know, and you know, you look at his genetics and, you know, his 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 mom, his brothers and sisters, they're all big people. Yeah. And so when he, the days that I played with him in Orlando when he was really young, he was light on his feet. He could do every, any and every dance that a five foot ten dancer could do. His footwork, unbelievable. Unbelievable. He could run the floor. He would win when we would do suicides and things like that. You know, he would win some of the some of the races with guys, and, and you know, and that's that was a young, fit, lean, Shaq. And he's still ripping backboards down. Tearing it down and playing the powerhouse game that he should play at that size. You know, and he never got caught up in like trying to learn a turnaround jumper like Patrick Ewing and or David Robinson. He he used what God gave him to dominate the game. And if you look at any NBA player, I would say probably with the exception of Reggie Miller always kind of kept his weight the same pretty much most of his career. Rip Hamilton, the same thing. But almost every other NBA player, when they came in, I came in the NBA at, at 180 pounds, and I, when I retired, I was 220 pounds. You're going to put on 5 to 7 to 10 pounds a year. Yeah. It's just naturally going to happen as you start, as you start to mature and your metabolism changes. So Shaq did no differently. You know, he, he, it wasn't that he ate an enormous amount. He worked his 
ripped off every day. Which Bill, is not the reputation for Lakers, right. Shaq. But, you know, and, then, and when that whole thing came out with Kobe and Shaq uh, this summer, um, when when Kobe said, uh, you know, if Shaq would have had his work ethic and worked out like he did, you know, we, they would have won a lot more championships. I actually called both of those guys that day, and I was like, I can't believe that you're still going at it because y- you guys, it hasn't a ch- it hasn't affected your status, but you guys not getting along a lot of that time, it affected me and Robert Ory and Rick Fox and you know, the other guys. And what people don't know, and in all fairness to Shaq, was that Phil Jackson, Shaq used to take such a beating every season. Night in and night out, guys hammering him, you know, the hack of Shaq, and, you know, trying to just make sure that he didn't get an and one. When the season would end, you know, we were were going, we were winning championships going into mid-June. When the season would end, Phil Jackson would instruct Shaq, don't do anything over the off season, just re- relax, relax, rest, re- let your body recover and recuperate, and work yourself into shape as when the season starts. And he, that was his directive to Take Shaq. Take the summer off, right? And that's what he did. And so nobody took the kind of beating that that Shaq did during the season. I mean, he was the MVP of all three finals that we won. You know, two thousand oh one and oh two, and so. I understand, and and I don't think that that really affected, um, you know, his his performance in terms of you know he because, you know, as the Warriors found out this year, after going five straight finals, um, it takes its toll. Injuries start coming into play, and and those same things happened with us when we won, you know, back to back to back. Well, the toe the toe injury for Shaq, right? He came in late in the season. That was the forty seven shot, right? That that year. So, what would your advice be for Zion? Because uh, you play with Shaq, who yeah. is a physical specimen like Zion. Zion's not seven feet tall, but from the strength and the size and the talent, how would you advise him? Well, I don't think that he should do anything different than what he's doing. I mean, he plays with raw force and power. Um, his his body makeup, he has no control over that. You know, he's however his dad, mom and dad and everybody that came before him were. And that's why his body, the nature side is taking it's going to it's going to do that. Yeah. What I will say is that uh, the earlier that he can start to eat cleaner, um, because, you know, everybody comes in the league and they eat junk. And then as you start to get older, then you, you start to find the importance of eating right, you know, in terms of, you know, being able to increase your energy and all that kind of thing but the one person tim duncan i thought stayed was effective for a long long time because he didn't get heavy he got lighter as he got older you know he put on some weight from when he first came in the league and then he was at a certain weight most of his career and then probably the last five years of his career he actually got lighter which allowed him to even play those those last five years mm-hmm. and still be effective and so um that would be the only thing that i would say is that um you know his his body is going to do what it does but he um eating cleaner um and and, and doing some research and finding out what certain foods can do for him but you know he's always going to be a big guy he has that strength, and as long as he's light on his feet and he's still athletic, and you know what have you, um, 
I, I think he's going to be fine. And I don't think that anybody should try to change that or put put that on his plate that, you know, he, he better lose weight and change his body, you know, body type or whatever. He, he can't do that. That's that's something that nature is, is, is going to yeah, control. Griff, Griff came out recently and said, you know, like LeBron, if he lifts a single weight, he's going to pack yeah. on weight like that. Yeah. And was Shaq like that too? Where it was like, how often did Shaq go to the the weight, weight room, room and push weight? He didn't. He didn't lift weights a lot early on. He did later on. Um, later on in his career, but you know, I mean, it was also a different NBA back where there's a lot of power and strength right, and training. Right. And and so I can only imagine if he would have lifted weights early on, and and you know, because he has that same body. Like he gets big when he did lift weights. He would get he would get really big and um and if you can imagine him like any bigger than what he is now, but he never you know he wasn't a guy like he doesn't have a a beer gut he's a guy that would be look like an in shape guy but just stretched out at seven yeah. seven one and you know three hundred and some pounds but it's all in proportion even to this day you know even to this day I was with him in Vegas a couple about about a month and a half ago. And um, and he took his shirt off, and it, there still there was I bet you his body fat is still relatively good. I mean, like him and, and Magic are the same way. Where I feel like they're rock solid even after they're playing your days are over. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Some people have it like that. Before you go, will we ever see a three peat in the NBA? Yeah, I think it's possible. I don't think that it's um I would never say that it's impossible. I think after the Bulls did it twice, you know, they didn't think it was going to be done again and our team did it. Um the the Warriors have come really really close. Um Were you, you rooting know. against them? No. No, I think <laughs> I think what, you know, hey, you're an Oakland guy, so like you got to Well, and and you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Warrior fan. Play for the Warriors. Other than whoever I, you know, work for. I've all, you know, I grew up a Warriors fan, and so you know, I'm still. There wasn't a little bit of you being like, I want to keep the Lakers being the last repeat team. No, no, because I think you know it all plays. You know, what people don't know about a lot of people probably don't know about me. In 1993, I held the three point record. You hit ten threes in a game, right? And the two years later, they had moved the line in. And I was on Orlando at this point. Now, when when I was hot in that game against it was against the Milwaukee Bucks in Milwaukee, I had six. I only played the the I played the entire first quarter and the entire third quarter. I didn't play in the second and the yeah. fourth. I had six threes in the first quarter, four threes in the in the third, and my teammates were looking for me. I was hot in shoot around that morning. So had they not been willing to pass me the ball, I never would have been able to yeah. break the record. And so, like, you know, I'm the same way. So two years later, I'm in Orlando, and the line has moved in, and Dennis Scott is having I was just going to say, having an incredible night. I passed him the ball for the 10th three to tie my record and the 11th three to, to break my record. So, you know, that's that's just kind of how, how I am, you know. Um Whatever is going to be is going to be, and if those guys hadn't done it for me, I wouldn't have had held on to the record, you know, for a year, whatever it was. And and if I wasn't willing to pass it to Dennis on his night when, you know, when everything was had aligned for him, then he wouldn't have been able to break the record. And so I think that you just always play with the spirit of the, you know, in the right spirit of the game, and then everything works itself out. 
Did you know that it was going to be 10 and 11 with Dennis Scott? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, because they the the scores table during the timeouts they let us know that that he was one away from tying the record, and then and then uh, it just, I mean, and, and it wasn't like I was searching it down. You know, it just happened. The ball swung to me. I swung it to him. He was open. He had a better shot, better look than I did. I swung it to him. He hit the ten. Tenth one, he like you know, hugged me, high fived me, and then I got actually got a chance to get him the one to, to break it as well. Steph Steph Scott, ten. Uh, I'd imagine I'd imagine like as Kobe came up with his dad and playing playing games, uh, you know, around the team, and Steph did too. And I'm curious. I did a big story on this last year's second generation players are skyrocketing in the league, and I'm wondering from your perspective. You know the pros and cons of gro- coming up through the league, like Steph, like uh, like Kobe did, where he he sees the NBA lifestyle. Is this like an edge for guys who can see like, hey, this is what it takes to get to that level? I think it's an advantage for them, for for those who, if they have it in them, then yeah, because you're around it and you get to see on a daily basis, for the most part, the kind of work that guys are putting in. But for as many that who have kids who made it in the league? There's a ton who have kids that play basketball that want to make it make it to the league that that haven't. Yeah, and so I think that that just goes to each individual um, and what their makeup is um, and, the, and the amount of work that they're willing to put into. You know, the, the pedigree is obviously there. Yeah. You know, you pass that down, but you have the Berries, you have the Curries, you have the Thompson, Michael Thompson, and Clay Thompson. You have the Grants, uh, uh, Harvey Grant's sons. Yep. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy and, and Jaron yeah. uh, Grant. Um, the Holidays, y- too. The Hardaway. Um, yep. You have, I mean, I, I was just going over, we were talking about this the other day. I mean, and there's a ton more that I'm not even, uh, Glenn Robinson the third, and Glenn Robinson, um, Gary Payton. His son um, Gary Gary Payton yep. um, played. He was on our team in L.A. a couple of years ago. There, um, there are nine second generation players when Steph came in, and now it's like twenty eight. Twenty eight now, oh yeah. It's it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I always thought because I went to basketball camp with Michael's kids. I went to UNC basketball camp okay. and saw one of Michael Jordan's kids, and it was like the Beatles. Like when the kid came into the gym. Mm-hmm. Like it is for Bronny James right, right. now. <laughs> and this is pre-social media, pre-YouTube, like where you only heard, oh, that's Michael Jordan's kid. Oh, my God, can you believe so, And that was pre-social media. So, like, I can't imagine what Bronny and Zaire, like those guys, what they are dealing with now, just the, the attention. But with D-Wade and with LeBron in 2011, I've never – I, that was the first locker room, I, believe it or not, that was the first locker room I've ever been in was that 2011 season. And for those media guys, I remember Tim Frank at the league office, the league office, pre, the first game of the season was against Boston in Boston, and it was unbelievable media. Like, you wouldn't believe it. And, and Tim Frank goes, this is more media that we credentialed. This is bigger than any finals game we've ever been to. Mm-hmm. was a regular season game between LeBron and, mm-hmm. and the Celtics. And his kids are are living through that now. Yeah, right. So I think to circle it back, you're you taking cell phones away from the team. I think if that happened today, I mean, coaches are doing that. It's just not public knowledge. They're 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 phone bags at dinners 
where you, you put the phones in the bag and then you can actually have a meal and talk to each other. Mm-hmm. I think people are now coming around on this idea that phones are not good for teams and camaraderie and chemistry. Yeah, and, and navigating around that is, you know, it's tough. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I didn't have the, at that time, the support that I needed to back me when I made those kind of decisions there because our GM and our owner, they were millennials and they were dependent on, you know, on their stuff. And, and there, it was their first time in their job, just like it was my first time as a head coach. And so we were all learning together. But when it's just one of me and then it's, you know, they have 15 other guys that they have to worry about, you know, I take the hit. But like I said, I had to understand that this is where the world is now. And, you know, you can, in a lot of ways, I'm still back in those days, but learning to understand that, that it's a different world that we live in now. Dame Lillard versus Shaq on the mic. They We're both won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I'll tell you why. You know, I, I've been in the middle of, of that whole back and forth. So when Damian did his his podcast with Joe Budden and I heard what he said, I knew immediately that Shaq was going to take offense to it. He was going to bite. And when he came out with his song, he t- he texted to me. Shaq texted his song to me when when he was getting when he was getting ready to release it. I called Dame because um, I grew up with Dame's father, Houston Lillard. I called Dame. I said, Shaq just did a, he's releasing a song about you. He took offense to what you said at Joe Budden's podcast. He he said, what did he say in the song? And then I said, um, I, I think it's out now. You can, you know, you can look it up. So anyway, knowing Dame and how he is, he said, I didn't say anything bad. But if, if just like if anybody comes up to me and says, who's a better point guard, him or anybody else, he's yeah. always going to say himself. Of course. And he said, so that's how I felt about rapping. Shaq is the pioneer. He has platinum platinum albums and all this and that. But I think that I'm a better rapper than Shaq. And so I said, okay. So I hit Shaq back. I said, I told him what Dame said. Shaq says, um, well, I'm going to release it anyway. But tell him that you know he, he, he can come back with another song if he wants to. And I said to him, I said, you better be ready to do three or four songs back to back to back. Because... Dame is relentless, and he's good. I said, he got some heat. Shaq let that song go. He told us that he was going to take it off after one day, but he didn't take it down. Dame let it go one day. The next morning at 745, he texts me with his rebuttal answer to that song. And then came out with the second song to Shaq's first song, and then now Shaq has done two, so now they're they're, they're two-two. Yep. I think that old school hip hop heads will and have said that they feel like Shaq won. And um, and I saw Jalen Rose on uh, first take one day say Shaq. He Jalen Rose, I thought, put it in perspective. He said that Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith said that Shaq won. And Jalen Rose said Damian Lillard won. And Jalen said that Shaq used a safety beat that it was an Eminem song, the first one that everybody was familiar with. So automatically you're going to start bopping your head to it, you know, because you know the beat. Dame, and then Shaq was very aggressive, and he was talking about himself a lot. And in a battle rap, you're supposed to talk about the other person. So Dame's was more 
laid back. It was more calculated, and he talked more about Shaq mm-hmm. than he talked about himself. And um, and so because and and his beat was the original beat that he he created. Um, and so that before that reason, Jalen said that Damian won because he was producing as well. Right. I think I say that they both won because I thought I thought in the style that Shaq raps, which is a, a more old school, yeah. it it was right on point. And I thought for the youngsters and what's happening now, Dames was right on point. But where I say they both won is because battle rapping, where you go back to Kumo D against LL Cool J, that's all it is is a battle rap. And it doesn't have to end up with two people dying like Tupac and Biggie. Um, you, you say what you want, you handle your business on the mic, and then it's all good afterwards, you know, and then you let the, the populace decide. And I think they both won because they were both effective. Did you connect it to? Like, yeah. Over text? Yeah, we we talked, and um and actually, what I'm hoping that comes out of it is that they end up working together and doing something together. So, is this a scoop right here? You think there might be something in the works, possibly? There's nothing in the works now. Okay, but I'm, breaking news, but nothing I'm, in the works. But I'm hoping that it goes towards that because they're both very very talented, and I know that Dame is true to his craft. He wants to perform on the BET uh, awards you know with the household name rappers that's that that's what he wants to do Shaq has already done that um you know performed and and um like I said has has had platinum records and all of that and so I know that they both love doing that and so um so I think they they both won and and I hope that they can kind of like a passing of a torch so to speak the old school passing the torch to the new school because I, I tell you what, you know, Iman Shepard, Shumper's pretty good. I think Dame right now in terms of active players is the best rapper. And I think that if you ask me who won between him and Marvin Bagley, Dame all day. Yeah. I'm, you know, and anybody who comes for Dame, yeah. yep. they better have four or five songs ready to go because he will go in the studio that night and have it out the next that's day. what i can't believe about it <laughs> is that he's writing it from scratch and he's and he's producing it and it comes out the next like in in hours it feels like yeah. he's going into the studio he had about a, a week before training camp started he had he has an annual um picnic at uh, Brookfield Park where where he grew up and he provides an opportunity so they actually have a stage at the park and he lets all the kids and teenagers and anybody who wants to rap or sing or whatever actually come on stage and perform at the at the picnic and he performs and so um I mean, you know that's just goes to show like how much how much he loves it and he he's really into it you like know he so, lives for this oh yeah yeah this is i mean Obviously, he realizes and recognizes that basketball is his craft and how he makes a living and takes care of his family and all of that. But I would say basketball is 1A and then rapping is 1B. So you're going to be featured on that album? My, you're my, done? I'm, I, I, hung, I hung him up. Oh, man. <laughs> man, I think we got to get Shaq and Dame on the line to get you back. Do, do a little Michael Jordan, I'm back. Get you back onto the floor. Well, uh, Brian Shaw... That was a great hour. Um, man, I, I said 30 minutes, but, man, we, we did it. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining the show. And 10 for 10, I got to – this is going up in the rafters of the Haber Show. You went – I have it written down right here. You can see it. Dana Barrow, Shaq, Malik Seeley, you went all the way to – 
man, that was impressive. So, right man, that Thanks. was a lot. All right, so you have the disc, the actual album. Oh yeah, I have a CD. I have. So a we got to get that on. And you know who one of the one of the uh, the this will throw you for a loop. So this past Friday in Oakland, they had the Sway Fest. Yeah. You know Sway. Sway was on that album. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And I saw him Friday at the Sway Fest. They had a block party in Oakland. Pandora, Sirius, and Shade 45 put on. And um, I went and I actually got on stage and um, and we reminisced and talked about talked about that. And a lot of people didn't, re- you know, he didn't he didn't rap on the on the album, but he was the I guess kind of narrator, uh, yeah. MC that uh, that did the intros. Um, is that what they call them? Intros when they you know so yes. they have like a little skit. Yep. I was gonna say an MC Sway, or a skit. Sway like, did that. Yep. Yeah. Man, <laughs> we gotta get that on uh, Spotify or Tayo. We gotta get that album back. Yeah. Because I don't know if there's ten guys in today's. Do you think there are ten guys in the league right now who would go on an album together like you guys did? Nope. No. <laughs> and, and I only say that because you know what? When you look at All Star Weekend. The guys who all should be in the dunk contest or three-point shooting contest, they don't right. do it. There's, and if, There's not much upside. And if them. everybody else did it, 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 like if Michael Jordan and Dr. J and Dominique Wilkins and those guys didn't do dunk contests, then what would Kobe and, er, and LeBron and everybody else who came after that who won dunk contests, you know, they wouldn't have had anything to shoot for. And then now, you know, you, you you get there and you got guys that don't even want to play in the All-Star game, don't want to, go, you know, do dunk contests. So what would make you think that they want to get on an album and rap together? I just think you called them soft. I think you just did. No, that came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Shaw, appreciate it, man. Hey, looking forward to the season working with you. And uh, you can find all of, all of Brian Shaw's stuff on the air, and it's going to be great uh, to have your insight on the game. So thank you so much for uh, for kicking it back here for the Haver Show. Appreciate you having me. All right. All right. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. That was Brian Shaw. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button and go rate and review the Haber Show podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that was great. And I can't wait for you to listen to this next episode uh, coming up in a couple weeks. I've already got it scheduled. The next Haber Show guest. Go tell your friends. Go tweet it out. Go share it. Really helps. And can't wait to see what Brian Shaw has in store at NBC Sports, Bay Area Studio Analyst. All right, until next time.